Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Production suspended. Boeing's MAX 737 jet crisis escalates. Subprime delivery. Amazon restricting sellers from using FedEx, citing performance issues. And tweeting up a storm, potentially. We're joined by the Twitter CFO live on First Move. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome back to uh, First Move. It's a joy to be back. We may not be in store for a white Christmas here in New York, but I tell you what, investors will settle for a green one, Boeing. Take a look at what we're seeing for the futures right now. Boeing, as I mentioned, dragging on the Dow. I'll explain why shortly. But uh, U.S. stocks do begin the session at fresh record highs, and that's the key here. In the meantime, I should point out as well, stocks rising for the last four days as the blizzard of recent uncertainties that they've been dealing with have steadily cleared, I think. We have a phase one trade deal between the US and China. Brexit in January now feels all but certain. And Mexico's concerns about the NAFTA Mark II deal, the USMCA, have apparently been calmed too. But hey, I tell you what, there's reasons for other forms of optimism. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York's index of factory sentiment hitting a five-month high on Monday. Then add to that the Atlanta Fed predicting a 2% growth rate this quarter too. That's a huge jump from earlier estimates. So the fundamentals seemingly kicking in here. Then what about Asia? We had strong Chinese consumer spending and industrial output numbers this week too. Perhaps maybe early days, but indicating the economy there could be steadying too. The Shanghai Composite rallying some 1.2%, similar gains in Hong Kong too. So a pretty positive start to the week. What about Europe as well? Well, stocks taking a breather right now, but again, they hit record highs on Monday as well. The first record for the Stocks Europe 600 in four years. We've had plenty of Santa Claus rally predictions on first move over the past month or so. And so far in December, Santa, it seems, has delivered the S&P 500 up around 1.5%. So the clouds may be clearing for global investors, but for Boeing, the clouds remain. And that's where we're going to kick off the drivers. Let's get to it. Boeing says it will halt production of the 737 MAX jets. The jets, of course, have been grounded since March following two fatal crashes. The company is still awaiting the recertification of the plane. And Richard Quest joins us on this story. Richard, great to have you with us. They threatened a production halt, but this does feel like a pretty drastic step here. Just talk us through the implications. The, the short-term implications are, of course, that they will be destroying the supply chain or at least halting the supply chain, which could lead to some very serious economic problems. You've got about 15, 18,000 employees in the Puget Sound who work on the 737. <clears throat> so they were not out of a job. 
they will be redeployed elsewhere within Boeing as Boeing has to prepare to get nearly 800 planes back in the air. You've got 378 that they've delivered, 400 that they've manufactured since the grounding, all of which will have to be individually inspected. Julia, I think that's one large part of it. The other one, of course, are the suppliers the supply chain and how this is going to affect companies large and small who are basically now going to be told, don't bother delivering to us for the time being. Yeah, trust, such a huge issue here. I have to wonder whether it ever comes back, at least with this name. Richard Quest, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver to the UK now, where sterling has been under a bit of pressure today, down almost 1% versus the US dollar. The UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, planning to block an extension of the Brexit transition period beyond December 2020. Here's what he said in his first cabinet meeting since re-election. It was a quite extraordinary, it was a seismic election, but we need to repay their trust and work 24 hours a day, work flat out to deliver on. And of course the first 100 days were very busy, 140 days or whatever it was. You may, you may remember it was a very frenetic time. but. You ain't seen nothing yet, folks. Harris Gold joins us now. Very Prime Minister Boris Johnson, I have to say, but he said this all the way along. He's not going to extend beyond December 2020. He also said he wasn't going to rule out going back to World Trade Organization rules. Something tells me he's preparing to engage firmly with the EU here next year. Negotiating tactics at play here, both domestically and with the European Union. But when you're looking at businesses, they see another cliff's edge. So despite the thumping win last week that Boris Johnson is concerned has had, despite that surge that we saw on Friday with the pound, the pound has now gone back down to pretty much where it was right before the election at about, we just saw a moment ago, about a dollar thirty-one, a dollar thirty-two. So it's kind of leveled out, wiped out the gains that it might have had before. And shares in UK focused companies are also sliding. The FTSE 250 is down just over one. The Royal Bank of Scotland is actually down by 4%. And we also just got some manufacturing output numbers from the Confederation of British Industry, which says that manufacturers suffered their worst output in the past three months. It's their biggest fall since 2009. And all this still has to do with Brexit. Because of that cliff edge, investors are still worried about what's going to happen on December 2020. If there's not going to be a transition, if we're going to fall onto WTO standards. But it's interesting because the Confederation of Business Industry that's putting out some of these stark numbers is throwing its weight behind Boris Johnson's plan, saying they will do whatever they can to help him. It's a slight kind of shift in tone from them, which I'm finding very interesting. But it just goes to show you that despite this big election win, despite all the, you know, the good news we might have seen on Friday in the markets, businesses are still very worried. And they're being advised by firms like DLA Piper to keep their no deal plans still warm and ready to go. Yeah, you have to think uh, the EU now has to take a step back and uh, think about this strategically. If they've given up a close relationship with the UK here, what can they come up with to achieve without risking a no-deal exit at the end of uh, December 2020? Feels like negotiating tactics to me. Hannes Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. The Amazon FedEx feud escalating. Amazon barring third-party sellers from shipping prime items with FedEx ground delivery. FedEx stock down some 1% pre-market. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. Claire, they said that this was due to performance declines and that the ban Mm -hmm. will last until these methods improve. I wonder... 
Yeah, there's a lot going on here, Julia. According to this email that was apparently sent to sellers and seen by the Wall Street Journal, the, the Amazon's uh, version of the story they did say is that uh, this is a temporary ban and it will last until the delivery performance of these ship methods improve. So on the surface, yes, this is a performance issue. Amazon are clearly very sensitive about the speed of shipment. This is a company that's already taken a 1.5 billion penalty for shipping costs in this quarter alone to try and get holiday deliveries out to customers at the fastest rate possible. They are spending $35 billion uh, on shipping this year. They're expanding one-day uh, delivery to all Prime members on, on millions of products. So it's a huge deal for Amazon. But, of course, the backstory is that they have been reducing their, their partnerships with FedEx. FedEx announced in June, just two months after Amazon said it was rolling out one-day shipping, that it would uh, end a contract to provide uh, express shipment on its planes for Amazon. Uh, and in August, a, a ground shipment contract was also uh, allowed to expire. So FedEx now grappling uh, with what was once a big customer in Amazon, now a big competitor. So that is uh, sort of the backstory behind all of this. Yeah, and I think that perhaps is uh, an indication of what we're seeing in the share price here. I mean, you have to just get a sense of what we're talking about here in terms of lost business and the reaction that you see in the share price. Investors already know this is a challenge. I guess the big risk here is, is that if customers shift to Amazon, they then don't go back, even if Amazon says, well... You know, you can if you want to. Right. As, you, as I said, Amazon are saying this is temporary. FedEx are, are playing this down, saying that it will affect only uh, a small number of, uh, of shippers. But, but look, 58% uh, of Amazon sales are from third-party sellers. A lot of them do have the option uh, to, to use FedEx. And this only affects them uh, that are using FedEx uh, for, for Prime in particular, at just FedEx Ground. So they can still use FedEx Express uh, for their Prime deliveries, and they can still use FedEx Ground for non-prime delivery. So it is a very specific ban. For the, so for the moment, I think, Julia, we're going to have to wait and see how this plays out. FedEx in the past has said uh, that Amazon represented only 1.3% of their revenues in 2018. So they consistently play this down. But I think the bigger picture is how much of a competitor does Amazon continue to be for them in the logistics space? Vast. Mm. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed with that story. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the others that we are tracking around the world. Coming soon on Capitol Hill, the U.S. Congress will begin the final step, leading to a vote on impeaching President Trump. A House committee will set the rules for the debate surrounding the third impeachment vote in U.S. history. The vote is expected to be held on Wednesday. A special court in Pakistan sentencing former President Perez Musharraf to death in his absence. It found he'd committed treason during his presidency by unlawfully imposing emergency rule. Musharraf has been living in Dubai since 2016 and has the right to appeal the ruling. To India now, police and protesters clashed as people again took to the streets of New Delhi due to a controversial citizenship law. Prime Minister Narendra Modi is trying to calm the protests, saying the law will not affect Indian citizens of any religion. It makes it easier for immigrants from neighboring countries to acquire citizenship unless they're Muslim. Right now, thousands of transportation workers are on the streets of Paris again. It's the 13th day of strikes. Workers are demonstrating against proposed changes to pensions. Police are trying to prevent any more clashes by banning groups identifying as yellow vests and forbidding gatherings around famous Paris landmarks and government buildings. We'll continue to follow the story for you right here on CNN. Right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, BlackRock's 2020 vision. The financial giant sees recession fears easing next year, but central banks perhaps won't be so friendly. And the U.S. elections, well, they're a wild card. We'll discuss. 
And it was a challenging year for President Trump's social media of choice, Twitter, will add fears ease in 2020. The CFO of Twitter joins us coming up on the show. Stay with us, we're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'll give you a quick look at what we're seeing for US stock market futures. Perhaps going to see a little bit of a pullback at the open today from record highs. Investors have pretty much got everything on their holiday wish list this December, from trade deals to greater Brexit certainty. The question is, where does that leave us? Well, tech stocks have been the big winners. The Nasdaq up nearly 33% so far this year, with chip stocks up 56%. Of course, we're excluding the damage wrought in December of last year, but hey, what a year it's been. Now, a new survey from BlackRock sees a, quote, favorable market backdrop for next year with recession fears easing further, though they do warn that the dovish pivot that we've seen from central banks is pretty much behind us, and it believes inflationary pressures could rise too. Let's talk through this. Mike Powell joins me. He's Global Chief Investment Strategist at BlackRock. Great to have you with us. Two crucial themes, protectionism, as you call it, the trade tensions front and foremost there. And then, of course, what, two-thirds of central banks around the world stimulating. Not going to be so easy for us to um, have that support next year, perhaps. That's exactly right. 2019 was really the story of those two things. 2020, with those forces moving to the kind of back of the burner, means that growth is going to have to come a little more front and center. I think we do see something of a pickup next year. There's a lot of that embedded stimulus from the central bank easing still working its way through the system. That should edge growth globally, as well as the United States, somewhat stronger next year. So the fundamentals then kick in. Because to the point that I made there as well, and it's from your report, recession risk fears are also going to ease. So you may not get more support or much more support from central banks, but hopefully they've done enough. That's exactly right. You know, I think with the central banks having done their job in 2019, that does mean that the recession risks that were so front and center August, September, we see as receding to the background. But to exactly your point, 2019 was a year of multiple expansion on the back of central banks. 2020 is going to have to be a little bit more of a year around growth and that top line expansion for stocks to perform. We think it will happen. You know, we can talk in aggregate and then we'll drill down into the details. But a lot of people will be looking at this and saying, look, we've had equities around the world, particularly here in the United States, dramatically outperform. We've got trillions of dollars worth of bonds trading with negative yields. You pay governments in order to to lend their money, which is quite astonishing. Um, Are valuations relatively too high to support, even if we do see greater growth coming through here in the fundamental solidifying? Where are we just relative to history on a valuation basis? You have a great chart to show this too. What do we think here? Yeah, so I think the important point is if you just look at something like a PE multiple, it's going to show equity markets being somewhat stretched relative to history. But the important thing is that PE multiples don't take into account the much different interest rate environment that we're in today versus history. And if you look at something like the equity risk premium today versus history, it looks much more reasonable, reflecting the fact that interest rates are structurally lower. And so to our eyes, equities both in the U.S. and globally look kind of in the broad range of reasonable or fair. So just to explain what you're saying there, you're saying that actually if interest rates were a lot higher, the future value of money and earnings potential for these companies is reduced. Exactly. But because they're so low today, actually you can look at this and value future earnings differently. 
That's exactly right. I mean, if you think about sort of just basic equity valuation, it's the future cash flows discounted by interest rates. Right. And those lower interest rates mean that the value of those tomorrow cash flows today is greater. So who benefits most? If we're talking about a relieving of some of the trade tensions, I know you like Japanese stocks. Where else do you see potential here as we head into 2020? Yeah, I think that's part of the story of 2020 is where we see not just growth firming a bit, but where we see growth firming right. in terms of sectors. And that I think is, you know, 2019 was a year where manufacturing, global trade, CapEx was really beaten down. And the place that has a bit more room to firm are exactly those parts of the global economy. That means things like Japanese equities, emerging market equities, what have you, in particular because, again, those valuations especially have been especially beaten down. And that gives them more upside when we expect to see this bounce back. I mean, surely that's very reliant on what we see from China as well and a stabilization in Chinese growth, because however excited we want to get about manufacturing recovery, if China's not recovering or at least stabilizing, um, we've got a problem. Yeah, and I think that's why the case that we're making for some of these cyclical assets is real, but also, you know, not kind of all in. It's, it's, it's somewhat muted. We, we see China stabilizing. We see them doing enough. And with the trade tensions relaxing, uh, them getting some benefit there too. But it's not going to be 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016 right. when they really push a lot of stimulus in and cause this big impulse globally. What about bonds? I mean, I'll go back to it. I think it's $17 trillion now worth of bonds globally trading with negative yields. What are you saying to investors about bonds and investing in bonds? Well, it's a somewhat easier story for U.S.-based yes, investors. Yes, it is. Uh, for our European and Japanese clients, that's a really challenging picture. And as we saw in 2019, the type of cushion that you want your bond allocations to provide you are still there a little bit, but it's going to be increasingly difficult to get that stabilization from bonds in those parts of the world. In the U.S., we're still in a somewhat better position. We saw just as recently as this past summer that when there was this geopolitical shock, when there were were these recession worries, U.S. bonds really rallied and cushioned portfolios. We still see that as being a part of the future, uh, but, you know, outside of the U.S., it's a much more challenged picture. What's the biggest risk for investors in 2020? I'd say, too, on the shorter term, you know, though we've gotten some good news on trade, you know, we've also seen how uncertain that can be. (laughs) That can unwind, that can cause a set of growth worries that we don't right now anticipate and put us right back where we were last summer. I'd say longer term, you know, we see the the, the possibility of a somewhat different inflation regime as a real uh, real worry. Not so much because it's super high probability, but because if like it were to happen, for years for that, quite frankly. If, if it does happen, it's one of those things that really impacts portfolios because you can't right. rely on that stock bond diversification. And right now, it looks pretty cheap to get some protection from tips and, and other sources of resilience. And that's a place where we think investors might be sensible to, to turn a little Just bit. Make sure you've got some diversification exactly. and some money invested there. Fantastic. Fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Mike Powell there, Global Chief Investment Strategist at BlackRock. And Thank you. Um, have a great holiday season. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break now. But coming up, the owners of oxycodone maker Purdue Pharma withdrew billions of dollars from the company, even as the opioid epidemic escalated. We've got all the details after this. Welcome back to First Move. The family, the Sackler family behind Purdue Pharma withdrew billions of dollars as the opioid crisis escalated. They pulled out 
a sum of $10.7 billion between 2008 and 2018, according to court documents. Jean Casares joins us on this story. Jean, great to have you with us. The importance, I think, of the money that was withdrawn was that it was eight times the size of the prior decade, and it came after they settled in 2007 with the Justice Department, so they had a sense, perhaps, of what was coming. Talk us through the details on this and what we make of it. That's exactly right, Julia, because the issue is you compare it with what they had taken out before, and it was between 2008 and 2018, they took out $10 billion from Purdue Pharma. And then what they did with it, they said, although the records cannot precisely say this is what was done, that they paid half of it in taxes and half they reinvested uh, into some of their international businesses. Now, this all came about because we are in the middle of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy at this point. And it was Purdue Pharma that came forward. I was in the courtroom when it happened, and they said, Your Honor, we want to be as transparent as possible, and we want to have an internal audit done for our years in business so we can show the creditors exactly where the money went, exactly what we did. And that is how this came out, which is fascinating. Uh, now, the fact is, this was during the time when people were very public that they had opioid addictions. People were dying. Families were broken apart. We do have a, a statement that we want to read from the Attorney General of New York because there are several states that are really contesting right now the proposed settlement by Purdue Pharma. The Attorney General says the fact that the Sackler family removed more than $10 billion when Purdue's OxyContin was directly causing countless of addictions, hundreds of thousands of deaths and tearing apart millions of families is further reason that we must see detailed financial records showing how much the Sacklers profited from the nation's deadly opioid epidemic. But the Sacklers have a different take on this. They say that these distribution numbers were known at the time the proposed settlement was agreed to by the dozen of attorney generals and thousands of local governments. And they are saying that it was smart business to do what they did, paying their taxes, and that they are the ones that came forth with this. And here's the problem, Julia. The longer that this bankruptcy proceeding is protracted and litigated and more and more issues come about, the less money there is going to be for the communities and the states in this country, in the United States. And that's the division right there, because the sooner you do this, the more monies the people will get, the yeah. people that have suffered and have those addictions. I couldn't have said it better. And to your point as well, they could have invested it elsewhere, and I'm sure they'll try and say that. Jean, great to have you with us. Yeah. Thank you so much Thank for you, explaining Julie. that story. The market opens next. Stay with First Move. First move, I'm Julia Chesley, live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell this morning. Caterpillar, as you can see, celebrating 90 years being listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Let's take a look at what we're seeing for stocks. As expected, a pretty flat start for the stock markets this Tuesday. Investors taking a bit of a centre pause after our recent record run. Boeing, of course, we've talked about it already, remains a big drag on the Dow this session, extending its losses after Monday's 4% drop on word that it will suspend production of the 737 MAX jet next month. Economists believe that U.S. growth actually could take 
a bit of a hit in Q1 as a result of that off, as you can see, another 1.5% early on in the session. All right, let's move on. As 2019 draws to a close, Twitter will look back at another busy year. Its stock had been rising for the most part of the year before a disappointing set of numbers in October. The company continues to attract new users, but advertising sales were a challenge. Now, speaking of advertising, Twitter received widespread praise for banning political ads from its platform in stark contrast to the policies of the likes of Facebook and other social media platforms. More tests like this will come next year with the U.S. presidential election. So there's plenty to discuss, and I'm excited to say Ned Siegel, the chief financial officer of Twitter, joins us now from San Francisco. Ned, fantastic to have you with us. Um, I want to start Thanks big for picture me, here. <laughs> Great to have you too. I want to start big picture to understand to understand what you are as a social media platform and who your user is, because I think this cuts to the heart of, of your utility and the function you provide. Talk me through that. And are you as a company well, our, clear on that now? Sure. Well, our purpose is to serve the public conversation. And what that means is helping people all around the world find out about the topics and events that they care about most. It could be the Rugby World Cup in Japan or Brexit or the prime minister election in the UK or the presidential election that you mentioned in the United States that comes up next year. Uh, these are all topics and events where people want to find out what's happening in the world and what people are talking about. And we help them do that. We organize the information much better than we have in the past. Uh, that's allowed us to grow our monetizable daily active usage by 17% in the last quarter. I think the streamlining of the sheer quantity of information and the changes that we've seen on Twitter has been a, a crucial thing. But I also think for, for advertisers, understanding what you provide, a great example that I saw was um, the Joker, the movie, and the engagement that you saw around the trailer. Talk me through that, because I think that provides a good comparison, again, with, with other platforms and other forms of advertising here. Well, the Joker is a great example of a company launching a new product or service, and Twitter is a great place to do that. We talk about two primary reasons that advertisers come to Twitter that really differentiate us, launching new products and services and connecting with what's happening. When the Joker trailer came out in August, Warner Brothers put it on a bunch of different platforms. It was seen twice as many times in the first hour on Twitter as anywhere else, because this is the place where people come to find out what's happening. It's where they come to engage, to form and help form opinions about new products and services. We were thrilled we were able to deliver that. But whether it's a movie or a chicken sandwich or a new phone, Twitter is a great place to connect with customers and help them understand your product or service. We're also a great place to connect with what's happening. The Super Bowl is my favorite example, where... In the United States, you saw 30 of the 38 advertisers who were on TV during the game also advertising on Twitter at the same time. Wow. Simply because it's direct access to consumer, it's very simple, I think, to use as well in this regard. And I guess you can multitask. Was that one of the, one of the reasons you think why you were getting so much engagement during the Super Bowl? Well, we can be really complimentary to other things. So if you're watching a game... If you're digesting the, uh, a political event, you can be on Twitter learning more and discussing that topic or event while you're watching it play out on a screen. And so if you're an advertiser during the Super Bowl, you want to amplify your message that people might be hearing during the game in the other place that people might be at the same time. Uh, so we end up being a great service for that. It also helps us bring great content to the platform. 
because whether you're a sports league or you're a news uh, broadcaster, you know that you're going to Twitter to find your customers a place where they might be when they're not on your product or service to help bring them back to it. Let's talk about political ads. A bold call from Twitter to say, look, we're not going to have them. We're not going to be paid to do them. What kind of response did you get? And financially, do you think it risks hurting you? And was that the right call to make regardless of the financials here? Well, Jack's call on political advertising was a principled call that really wasn't about financials. Uh, the good news is when you look at 2018 as a reference point in the U.S. Uh, uh, midterm elections, that political advertising was about $3 million. So that gives you some sense for size in a previous period that, of course, may be smaller than a presidential election, but gives you some sense on a $3 billion advertising business, uh, what we're talking about. But we make these decisions from a principled perspective, recognizing that if we do the right thing for the people who use the service, for the advertisers who use the service, uh, for all of our stakeholders, it'll all play out better in the long term. We want voice around political topics and events to be earned and not bought. And when we make that really clear, it ends up being a proud day for everybody at the company and for all of our stakeholders when we're able to apply our principles to our business. 2020 elections in the United States, there are fears around foreign interference. We saw that with the 2016 election. It's been proven. Is Twitter safe for users? Have you made it safe? Well, we're always working hard to make sure that people can trust the information that they see and that they can feel safe being a part of the service. And when you're able to juxtapose one event from another four years apart, we think you'll see an incredible change in terms of both how the information is organized so people can find what they're looking for, but also removing spammy and suspicious behavior, having candidate labels, having live content around the election. In the UK election that just happened, we had live video, we had prompts to tell people where to go to vote. Uh, we had the um, outcomes of the election. They're now really a commodity. You can find them anywhere. But the discussion and allowing people to be part of the discussion, allowing them to see all sides of a discussion, not just the one with which they might agree, uh, that's something that's really differentiating to Twitter. Remember, it's an election every day on Twitter somewhere in the world. And so we've had a lot of opportunity to improve since the last presidential election in the United States in 2016. You know, I mentioned the challenges that you had with the, the earnings numbers and the disappointment there that investors displayed. What do investors need to understand about what you're offering now? I feel like they look at the valuation and they say, look, at that doesn't match the revenues. They look at the number of users and perhaps they don't understand the kind of level of engagement that you're getting and how the relationship with advertisers works. What do investors need to understand about what Twitter represents here and how you're going to monetize the product going forward? Well, our, our goal is to get the whole world to use the service. Everybody cares about topics and events. And if we can organize the incredible content that's on Twitter uh, increasingly in a more compelling way for people around the topics and events they care about most, uh, they'll come to Twitter more frequently. They'll find what they're looking for. They'll tell other people about it. We've found real success around that in the last few quarters where our monetizable DAU growth has accelerated for each of the last few quarters. And we've broken out of this range that we we're in for the last couple quarters. So if we can continue to grow the base of people who use the service, we're confident we'll be able to deliver uh, strong and relevant advertising to those people. And the outcomes for all of our stakeholders, including the shareholders, will be great. When we look at the third quarter where we did have some challenges, which we really feel were in our control, it validates our strategy. We had really strong performance in terms of monetizable daily active usage, 
but we also demonstrated that the work we're doing on the revenue products is really critical. We need right. our ad server to be more performant, and we need our ad formats to be more performant as well. Well, Ned, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Ned Seagal there, the CFO of Twitter. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for that. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, my interview with the CEO of money transfer giant MoneyGram, his take on going digital and the company's partnership with Ripple next. Welcome back to the show. MoneyGram is one of the largest money transfer companies in the world, known for its local presence. Yet the rise of digital tech means it's also in a period of transition. Next stop, the digital platform, the key to staying relevant in the cross-border payment industry. I spoke to Chairman and CEO Alex Holmes and asked him to explain what MoneyGram does and how it's tackling broader digitization. Listen in. The core remittance space, so migrants, uh, hundreds of millions of migrants, you know, moving to other countries to find uh, opportunities, send money back home to support their, their friends and families and improve the lives of, of those in the countries that they, that they came from. We um, traditionally have operated globally, um, you know, through what we would call an agency network, so 350,000 locations in 200 countries around the world. Uh, but recently, in, in the last several years, we've been going through what we call a digital transformation, really trying to modernize our company and keep up, up with all the changes in technology and all the things that are happening, um, you know, at the forefront of, uh, of digital and communications and telecom and mobile and, and all the other exciting things. Yeah, that is exactly the question I was going to ask you in an increasingly digitized world. What proportion now of your overall transactions are done in some form via digital versus in store, in the local presence that you've talked about? What's the split right now? Right. No. So, you know, the World Bank is probably the foremost leader in, the, you know, in, in measuring um, the percent of the industry that is, has moved digital. And so today they'd say, roughly speaking, about 60 percent of all transfers around the world are done still through cash. In our business, we're catching up quickly. About in the last quarter, we just surpassed 20 percent of our global transactions uh, are now done digitally. So uh, we've improved our capabilities uh, quite considerably, really in the last uh, 18 to 24 months and just past uh, 60 countries where we have digital capabilities enabled. So we're very excited about that. We're leading that with a lot of online direct consumer platforms, uh, a brand new app that we've rolled out, uh, new technologies for us like transaction notifications, uh, a really exciting revamped and enhanced loyalty program. And it's really driving a lot of attraction and, and really uh, in many ways, which is really interesting, Julia, a, a completely new customer demographic for us. About 85% of all of our customers that transact digitally uh, were never in the walk-in space before. So you actually see kind of an evolving market, uh, which is great for us because it's additive to both, you know, the walk-in business, but also uh, additive to uh, the growth of the company. MoneyGram stock is up almost 20% year-to-date, although that partial recovery comes after a steep decline in the previous couple of years. This year, the digital payment platform Ripple has invested $50 million in the company. MoneyGram struck up the partnership in June to make the most of Ripple's digital currency, XRP. Cross-border transfers can be notoriously tough, so I got right to the point with MoneyGram's CEO. Why Ripple? Listen in most people probably really don't understand about, about money and the movement of money is that it's incredibly complicated to move money cross-border. Uh, one of the things that we talk about quite a bit internally is 
that you know money doesn't actually move, right? Data moves, and <laughs> so it's a really cumbersome process to run what we call the net settlement engine to uh, enable the cash to be available in all of those markets for settling into bank accounts or actually paying out cash to consumers, and so. We have a lot of what we call liquidity and working capital positioned all around the world, uh, 122 different currencies, um, you know, many different bank accounts and associated uh, pieces that really help us to uh, facilitate the flow so we can actually move money instantly, right, without actually moving money. So what's interesting about Ripple and, and what's happening in the blockchain and crypto space is for the first time, there's a technology available that has the potential to truly transform that capability and actually, you know, move money with data, which to me is just, you know, kind of magical in a lot of ways, because that's really what the future is all about. How do you instantly transfer funds? How do you instantly sort of transform uh, the business without all of this, you know, as, as, as Brad would say at, at Ripple, with all this trapped liquidity you know, around the world. And so um, that's what's exciting about Ripple. That's what's exciting about their technology platforms and all the, the, the change that they're trying to drive and the innovation they're trying to drive. You chose Ripple because you think they right now have the best platform to do this most efficiently. I think they not only have the best platform to do it efficiently, but they also have the, the, the vision that I think uh, encapsulates what we're trying to do as well, right? How do you drive down costs? How do you improve throughput? How do you drive efficiency and, and provide a better service, not only for uh, our customers, but also for uh, the future and, and, and potential customers that are coming. And so, you know, I think Ripple and, and its, you know, cryptocurrency XRP uh, is really innovative in that sense. They've, they've driven um, well over 300 partners around the world. Some of those are banks, some of those are other uh, remittance providers like MoneyGram. Uh, and so there's just sort of an infinite possibility as you build out, you know, that network and the associated uh, touch points uh, through that through that channel and through that capability. Is it bringing prices down? You've said it's quicker to, to use their technology and, and their platform, the settlements quicker. But is it also bringing costs down? Are you able to pass that cost reduction on to, to customers, too, as a result of, of using Ripple's platform and XRP, the digital currency? to do this? Yeah, no, that's no, a great question. So there's a lot of things driving, uh, driving costs uh, and, and, and price in a market. And so if you think about, generally speaking, it should be very, very quick. It should be very uh, inexpensive to move money cross-border. But the truth is it, it, it is it is not today. And that is largely because of uh, the cost of foreign exchange, the cost of banking services, uh, it's the speed at which you can actually uh, move money and, and, and make these things happen. And so companies like MoneyGram have innovated for years to try to drive uh, the best solution possible. But, you know, as I was saying earlier, to have liquidity parked in all these markets around the world for the purposes of instant settlement actually takes a lot of working capital. It takes a lot of cash and it takes a lot of forward thinking uh, to preposition money out there. If you also think about currencies never really being stable. Currencies mm. are always quite volatile. And so the fluctuations in that is moving all the time. You know, if a customer wants to send $300 from the U.S. to Mexico, uh, we're giving them a rate. We're locking in that rate. But the price at which we have to buy Mexican pesos for purposes of settlement in Mexico, you know, that could be at a totally different at price point by the time we get to actually pre-positioning that currency. So 
If you're able to take that $300 that consumer wants to send and actually settle it instantly, real time, and give the same rate to MoneyGram that you're giving to the customer, uh, it's actually a very, very interesting opportunity to streamline and take costs out. And yes, those costs then can be passed back to to customers, uh, or you know, as a public company, they can also be uh, you know driven to help improve margin and actually profitability for the company as well for shareholders. So you know, it's kind of a win-win combination, and it's also enabling you know this instant uh, speed of money, which is amazing. Now, I asked first move viewers uh, what their most popular questions were, or questions for you were, and um, <laughs> one that kept coming up was, "Do you own the digital currency XRP, or does MoneyGram?" So I'm asking you. Do you own any yourself? I, I personally do not own any okay. XRP. Um, and uh, uh, MoneyGram um, itself, uh, again, because of sort of new regulation and, and reporting requirements, um, you know, any XRP that we receive, uh, we, tend to, uh, we tend to sell uh, about as real time as, as possible. Um, you know, there's a lot of changing uh, regulation and accounting rules around um, cryptocurrency and the assets associated with it. So, no, we do not hold... Uh, for any period of time, any 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 crypto assets on our books. MoneyGram has also done deals with Visa, Visa Direct, to make payments straight to debit cards. It's all about the need for speed. I asked Alex if he plans to take the U.S.-based service cross-border too. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the challenges, you know, for us has been how do you compete with right. how do you compete with a free service, and and that's really complicated. So, you know, we've we've done everything we can to reduce costs, reduce friction. Um, and, uh, and, and improve our U.S. domestic product. We, we used to be one of the largest players in what we call the U.S. domestic business, which was really cash-to-cash payments um, across the United States. That, that market has declined quite substantially. Our market share has dissipated um, with the rise of, of Venmos and Zells as we've lost market share to these digital players. And so for us to uh, be able to um, push back and get, get that market share back um, is great. And, and the adoption of Visa Direct in the U.S., the ability to push money uh, from an account to an account uh, is an absolutely uh, needed service. Uh, and so we are actually competing now and, and actually doing quite well. So we're very excited about that. Um, and again, it's hard to compete with free, but uh, we're doing the best we can on that. And I think our service uh, through our app and that capability with Visa is giving consumers a connection and a capability that they've, that they've been wanting. What does the potential entry of Facebook into the e-payments space mean to you? To go back to over yeah, your think, point about cross-border potential, 2.4 yeah, billion monthly uh, active users. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think what Facebook is trying to do is, is, uh, is, is absolutely exciting. I think that anybody who um, knows what's been happening in Silicon Valley and you know, sort of in the evolution of tech uh, recognizes exactly what you said, that the enormous amount of users, 2.4 billion or, or whatever that number is, uh, it's just astronomical to even sort of contemplate and think about. And so certainly, you know, their aspirations of pushing into financial services really can't be denied. The MoneyGram CEO there, more of that conversation coming up on social media. For now, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Shares in Unilever down more than 6% after the consumer goods giant lowered its sales guidance for 2020. The company blaming a slowdown in Southeast Asia and weak sales in North America. SpaceX has successfully launched a satellite from Florida. Its aim is to provide internet coverage to poorly served Pacific Island nations. 
The satellite belongs to a Singapore-based startup which says there are around a million people in Asia-Pacific region willing to pay to get internet access for the first time. All about owning the skies and Mariah Carey's career hitting another high note as the singer celebrates her holiday classic All I Want for Christmas Is You, reaching the US at number one for the first time. It was originally released back in 1994. It's completing a long journey, therefore, to the top spot. I refrain from singing. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You can listen to our podcast on cnn.com slash podcast. Thank you for watching. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.